sustainable care team, led by Professor Sue Yendel at the University of Sheffield, is exploring how care arrangements currently in crisis in parts of the UK can be made sustainable and deliver wellbeing outcomes. We aim to support policy and practice actors and scholars to conceptualise sustainability in care as an issue of rights, values, ethics and justice, as well as of resource distribution. Our Care Matters series includes publications, podcasts and blogs from our team and others working towards sustainable care. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Care Matters podcast series. My name is Dr. Matthew Riviere. I'm a UKRI Innovation Fellow at the Center for International Research on Care, Labor, and Equalities at the University of Sheffield. In this role, I investigate challenges and opportunities for the deployment of technology in the care of older adults. On today's podcast, we will discuss the recent publication of our new policy brief, The Potential of Technology in Adult Social Care. I'm joined today by the policy brief's two co-authors. Our first guest is Dr. Kate Hamblin. Kate is a senior research fellow at the Center for International Research on Care, Labor, and Equalities at the, at the University of Sheffield. She's a co-investigator on the Sustainable Care Connecting People and Systems program, on which she leads on the work package, Achieving Sustainability in Care Systems, the Potential of Technology. In addition, she also contributes to work packages focused on conceptualizing well-being and sustainability, innovation in home care, and support to enable people to balance care and paid employment. In addition to issues related to technology in care, Kate's previous research has focused on self-employment, active aging employment, and pension policies, and also the role of the arts in supporting well-being. Kate is also trustee of a charity, Into Science UK, concerned with the quality of access in higher education. Thank you for joining us today, Kate. That's great. Thanks for having me. Our second guest today is Dr. James Wright. James is a research associate at the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Research Institute for Data Science and AI. There, he works on Path AI, mapping an intercultural path to privacy, agency, and trust in human AI ecosystems, a joint project between UKRI and the Japan Science and Technology Agency. His research interests include the development and use of robots and other digital technologies for the care of older adults in Japan, Europe, and the UK as well as algorithmic emotion recognition systems and public innovation policy and practice. James, thank you for joining us today as well. Thanks a lot for having me and uh, it's great to be here. Great, thank you. Um, my first question today is in the sustainable care program, how have you been researching the role of technology in adult social care? Thanks, Matthew. Um, so in our project, which is part of the sustainable care program we're looking at how technology can be used in adult social care to deliver well-being outcomes in a sustainable way um, and with that in mind adult social care is an incredibly complex policy and practice environment so social care is devolved in the four to the four nations and within those four nations there are 152 local authorities in england 22 in wales 32 councils in Scotland and five health and social care trusts in Northern Ireland, which are delivering adult social care. And between these various localities, we've got a huge diversity in both the populations they're serving. There are areas of the UK where there is um, significant numbers of um, 
older adults needing care in comparison to others. We have diversity in budgets. So we've got, uh, for example, Hampshire as a local authority has a budget of one million pounds per day on adult social care, which when you compare it to other parts of the UK is, is quite significant. And within these commissioning arrangements, you have technology. And again, there is a huge diversity in how adult social care services are delivering their technology services. So you are, we're seeing different levels of investment, we're seeing different commissioning arrangements and different policy legacies in terms of how these things are playing out. So what we started with in our project was to review this policy and practice landscape and, and the literature around it and to conduct stakeholder interviews to try and capture some of these complexities and look at how some of these services are using technology in, in, in innovative and new ways to deliver well-being outcomes in a sustainable way. Thank you for that, Kate. As I mentioned, we are focusing on your recently released policy brief, the potential technology in adult social care. Can you explain some of your emerging findings? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. So I think we found three kind of big trends overall. The first is that the technology landscape in adult social care is really fragmented. So if you look back into the history of technological interventions in care, um, and you look back to the case of telecare in the 1990s, what you see is a huge national level push to get the technology out to uh, local authorities. So you have a kind of centralized fund called the Preventative Technology Grant that funded a lot of this implementation. That's very different from the situation that we see today. Today, what you see is uh, a lot of national level investment in research and development of new kinds of care technologies and AI and robotics and things like that. But at the actual level of implementation, where these technologies actually have to be put into place, that's all driven by local authorities. So local authorities don't have much in the way of guidance, central guidance or a central advisory body that's, um, that has expertise in care technologies. They all have to figure it out for themselves. And what that leads to is a fragmenting of pilots and small scale studies where local authorities are trying to figure out, does this technology work? Does it give return on investment? And do we actually want it? So because all of the local authorities have to figure this out for themselves, you see pilots at a very small scale being repeated, weak evidence being collected. And so what the message we're getting from local authorities is really, this is overwhelming. There are so many new startups in this space. We're not getting any guidance and we're not sure exactly what the benefits of these technologies are. So that's the first, <laughs> the first kind of overall finding that we had. A second finding was, and it's linked to the first one, is that you, we're seeing a big uptake of consumer devices and kind of consumer the technologies that are developed for everyday consumers being then applied into an adult social care setting. So that includes things like smart speakers, Amazon Alexa is a big one, tablets, iPads, apps, websites, lots of those kind of WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups that are used to coordinate care or deliver care at a distance. In some ways, it has benefits and drawbacks. 
the benefits are that these devices are really cheap. They're really readily accessible. They're designed uh, with accessibility in mind and user friendliness in mind. But there are also risks of that. So these devices or technologies aren't specifically designed for care. They're displacing a lot of expensive specialist equipment that has been designed for care. But there are big question marks about how reliable it is. You know, will Alexa, I mean, Alexa's only been around for a few years. Will it be around in 10 years time? You have very short kind of product lifespans in the consumer electronics market. And that doesn't quite fit with the long-term kind of commissioning process of local authorities that need certainty over time. And they need to make sure that products that are used in social care match the kind of standards and frameworks seen in, in telecare, for instance. Um, and that kind of brings me to the, to the third finding, which is, and Kate is, is probably more, well, more of an expert on this, the digital switchover in 2025. So this is when all of the analog telephone lines in the UK will be switched off. So a lot of traditional telecare devices are connected to analog phone lines and they only work with analog. They don't work with digital phone lines. So this is creating a huge challenge for local authorities that have to either upgrade their existing telecare devices to make sure that they can work after 2025 or replace it with something else. Something that a lot of local authorities told us was that they were interested in exploring what could be an alternative to traditional telecare. You know, some of the people that we spoke to said that a better alternative would be a kind of internet of things collection of different devices that could all be uh, networked and connected. And even that something like a smart speaker, um, if it had the correct adherence to standards, that that could be a potential replacement for traditional telecare. But again, there hasn't been a lot of central advice on how exactly to switch over in time for the digital switchover. So it's left a lot of local authorities unsure about how to proceed. And some of them just don't have the money to place all of their devices. And linked, I guess, to that, the issue around the digital switchover is there is the cost of replacing analog devices with digital devices or the other option of going with something new and maybe mainstream. But we have a further challenge, which is around the digital divide in, in the UK. So that isn't a divide in terms of both the access and skills to use digital devices. But if we park the skills issue for a moment, in the UK, digital networks are not evenly distributed. There are areas of the UK which are poorly served by broadband connections and 4G and 5G. Um, and something that we did look at as part of our project was we sort of mapped where those parts of the UK are. And in some areas, those are also the areas where we're seeing a greater aging population. So you've got uh, uh, areas of the UK which have potentially an increasing demand for adult social care and digital adult social care potentially when, once the analog systems are fully turned off, but at the same time don't have the capacity to deliver it digitally because the infrastructure simply isn't there. So that's that has some implications really for these local authorities in, in, in looking for a digital solution they have to consider what that actually means because 
you know, if they find the perfect product, it may not necessarily function reliably, as reliably as analog systems, because analog phone lines, you know, were extremely reliable in, in delivering these telecare solutions. And it, it's it's a challenge that, that is emerging, I think, as time goes on. And, and 2025 is, isn't that far away. And some of these phone lines are already being switched over. So it, it's something that needs to be tackled, really. Just um, on that topic of digital divide, um, one of the statistics that we found that really jumped out at me was um, a 2019 survey by the Oxford Internet Institute uh, that showed that only 47% of people aged over 65, so fewer than half, use the internet. So <laughs> while there's a lot of hype, about getting everything online and delivering care through online means, digital means. We have to make sure that people are actually on board and actually able to participate in that. Otherwise, we'll find that, that there's a polarization between people that have the skills and also the technical infrastructure to be able to access those services and maybe better services and people that are just completely excluded from that. Thank you both for that very thoughtful response. Um, you've highlighted a lot of challenges right now for the care system within the UK. But of course, right now, we're also all living within the context of an ongoing global pandemic. My question for you is, what impact do you think this COVID-19 pandemic has had on the implementation of new technologies? Has the situation brought to light any new challenges or opportunities? Yeah, so I think it's difficult to say because obviously it's still an ongoing situation. You see news headlines, but it's not clear exactly what the real and lasting impacts of COVID are going to be. It seems to be acting as a catalyst for the use of some technologies. For instance, Matt Hancock just announced 11,000 iPads for care homes. And anecdotally, and from the interviews that we've done with our stakeholders, it seems that there has been a lot of interest in technologies. Obviously, it might be a way to enable social distancing, to keep contact between older people and their relatives when they can't have physical contact or be physically present. So in some ways, it seems to be promising. In other ways, it's unclear exactly what the real substantive impact is. And then at the same time, you have care homes, which although they may have had some money thrown at them by the government initially, are facing kind of longer term financial problems, as are local authorities, because, for instance, people who've passed away in care homes mean that, that they're receiving a, a smaller budget. And at the same time, many people don't want their relatives to move into a care home because of the initial problems of COVID outbreaks. So what that means is financially in the sector, there's less money. Um, local authorities also facing financial challenges. So both of these things mean that it's unclear whether they can even afford to implement new technologies that they're planning to implement before the, the pandemic. So I would just add that I'm sure Kate is going to be continuing with her interviews to, to look at what those impacts are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the iPad example is a beautiful one around, so it's 11,000 iPads, but we know that there are 7,000 care homes that don't have an adequate internet connection. You know, the CQC and BT in their survey found this, and you know, that's 
almost half of all care homes don't have an adequate internet connection, but we'll give them an iPad and that will solve everything. But they, it won't function without the right infrastructure there at the same time. The technology isn't the answer, really, without a little bit of forethought and, and consideration as to what, you know, what it needs to function properly and actually what is it you're trying to achieve. Well, my, my question is 11,000 iPads for care homes, but who are they going to be talking to? <laughs> I mean, unless you give the iPads to the relatives or whoever you want them to communicate. I mean, assuming it's for communication, but it's not really clear what it's for. And I think that's a real problem with this. Okay, again, it seems to be a kind of techno fix, but we're not sure, you know, is it for communication? Is it for entertainment? Is it for brain training? Is it for something else? You know, we just don't know. Thank you both. It seems like one of the challenges then is, people are just putting technology as a solution into place without thinking about what actually outcomes are trying to achieve. And I think that's a good place to turn to back to the policy brief. And what are your key messages for policymakers and practitioners? Yeah, and I, I think that's a really important one. And I think one of our key recommendations is around outcomes-based commissioning. So thinking, it's not about the technology. The technology should never come first. It should never be a question of, we found this really exciting, whizzy piece of kit. How can we insert it into our existing service? It should be about what are the outcomes we're looking to achieve and what array of tools can we apply to this? And maybe one of them will be technology. It may not be the only thing that can achieve well-being outcomes for, for people. And the danger is, is obviously you want to appear innovative and forward thinking and technology goes hand in hand with appearing innovative and forward thinking. But if it's not put in place with the outcomes in mind, that's problematic. Equally, if it's not put in place with the infrastructure in mind, that's problematic because what we're seeing is a lot of these mainstream devices are actually reasonably cheap in comparison to traditional telecare devices. But they're not when you factor in, you need an ongoing broadband connection to make them work. <laughs> and who's paying for that? It, it's slightly problematic. So our other, find, our other sort of key messages for policymakers are around the digital switchover, and it, it does require action from both policymakers and commissioners. It could be a fantastic opportunity to rethink those traditional telecare services, to make them more outcomes focused, more flexible, networked, to think about how you can use the data generated for preventative care. But that does require a lot of thought and planning. and, and some of the feedback we were getting is there was a sort of nervousness and reticence because local authorities don't really know in this very crowded and fragmented marketplace where to look. Um, and there are organisations like the Technology Enabled Care Services Association, the TSA, which is a membership body which can advise, but local authorities were still finding it quite a hard marketplace to, to navigate. And where they're relying on third party providers to tell them that their stuff is the best, it, it, they're, they're sort of exposed to, to risk there. And linked to that is around the sort of standards and frameworks that exist in, in technology enabled care services at the moment that perhaps need to be redesigned and rethought to include or to at least reference these digital mainstream devices. So they currently are not subject to the same standards that traditional telecare is subject to because they're not marketed as alarm systems. Alarm systems in, in this country are subject to certain regulation. They have to have certain safeguards like a battery life of 24 hours, things like that. But these devices aren't 
part of that system. So they don't, they are, they are subject to a, Internet of Things devices are subject to a voluntary code of conduct, but it's not quite the same. We're seeing emerging codes and charters emerging to help commissioners commission services in a way that thinks about human rights and safety and when thinking about using Internet of Things and mainstream devices. But at the moment, it's it's all a bit unclear and hopefully something is going to emerge fairly soon because local authorities really do need to start thinking about their digital offer as, as analog services are turned off. And the TSA are, are also thinking about this and trying to strike a balance between standards that ensure safety and, and manage risk, but at the same time, don't stifle innovation. So that's really where our key messages are at the moment. They're around commissioning service in an outcomes um, focused way, taking action on the digital switchover. And with that in mind, they, these local authorities do need expert guidance and standards and frameworks to help them navigate this, this quite confusing and fragmented marketplace. Thank you, Kate. On today's podcast, we talked a lot about the challenges that the care system is currently facing. And now for our final question for today, I was hoping that we could talk about what we hope for for the future of the role of technology of adult social care. In terms of my hopes for the future role of technology in adult social care, I think it's, it's a broader question of, around digital inclusion. A single device is not going to be the answer to any of the, the, the problems that adult social care is currently in fa- facing. And even if it were, there is the broader issue of the fact that there are large areas of the UK where people are digitally excluded because the infrastructure simply isn't there to support these devices. There isn't reliable broadband, there isn't reliable 4G or 5G connectivity. And that has implications that that spread beyond the delivery of adult social care through digital technologies. That is digital exclusion far more broadly than that. And it's about accessing other things that can enhance well-being and, and I think it's a very important thing to be tackled and, and we did speak to local authorities um, and commissioners who were thinking about these broad infrastructural challenges and were employing mesh networks and trying to tackle that issue first and foremost before then rushing to a digital solution for adult social care and that also has a knock-on effect around data which is an interesting point so with these networks that these local authorities are creating, they own the data and that has all sorts of advantages. It means that they can share it with the user. The user can have a greater ownership of their own data. They can use it in a preventative way. They can share it across services within local authorities, but also local um, NHS services. It has a huge potential for prevention. And I guess my concern around some of these mainstream devices that we're seeing is that isn't perhaps the same (laughs) when you buy a mainstream smart speaker the data is not yours and when you employ it in a adult social care context the data is not the local authorities it is ultimately owned by the manufacturer of of those devices and as a consumer i guess that's that's a uh, something you sign up to and you're fine with but when it's an adult social care provided device or someone has purchased on the advice of adult social care to deliver care functions, that raises questions for me around, is the end user adequately uh, aware of, of what's going to happen to their data? And I guess that's that's something I, I 
feel that in the future it does need to be addressed some one way or another if these devices are going to become extremely widespread in their use in adult social care. For me, the key thing is that technology is important, but it's not the be all and end all. It's not going to alone solve the problems in the, the adult social care system. Um, I think it's really easy to get caught up in kind of techno hype about the latest uh, gadget that's going to solve all of our problems. But I think much more important is to properly value uh, human caregivers. And that means both financially, you know, paying them enough and also socially. And I think the socially part we've seen during the pandemic with the clap for carers, for instance, I think that's a great, been a great sign that people at large care about carers. But I think you can't just clap, but not advocate for properly financially rewarding care workers. I think one possible way of doing that is actually um, a suggestion that has been floated actually fairly recently, which is to have a national care system where the cost of care is socialized. So my one of the areas that I look at is, is Japan. In Japan, they have a long-term care insurance system that they introduced about 20 years ago. So they introduced the tax on everybody aged over 40, quite a small tax. And they also used uh, general taxation to fund this system where everybody over the age of 65 has universal access to a variety of different care services, including residential care, which is heavily subsidized. Uh, I think something like that is necessary in the UK in the coming years. And I think Japan has shown that it is possible to do that, even in a big country uh, where the cost of care is expensive. I think that's much more important than looking at individual technologies of care that may or may not be introduced. I think instead of relying on smart speakers, for instance, we should be appropriately taxing the tech companies that make smart speakers in order to fund our vital adult social care system. In terms of technology that is developed, um, I'd really like to see a continuation of what is almost ubiquitously talked about, which is co-design. So that means de designing technology and developing technology, not in a laboratory where you never meet the end users, but actually involving end users, which are in this case, older adults and their caregivers. Um, at every different stage of the development process. It's very difficult to do that with consumer electronics because they've already been developed. So what you're co-designing is either an app or a service as a whole. Um, that can work. And I think there are some really good examples of the way that that has worked. But I think that there needs to be a lot of close coordination with people who are actually using this technology. And obviously, as one of our recommendations, I think that given this huge number of new startups in the space and a very fragmented landscape, I'd like to see a national level central advisory service that can talk to local authorities and recommend specific technologies that are already available so that local authorities don't have to rely on their own small scale pilots um, every time they want to introduce a new technology. And finally, for me, just to, to end on a positive note about the potential of technology, I wanted to give the example of a company called Has Technology, 
they have what they call an armed system, which uses algorithms and AI to analyze a variety of different data sources for people living in sheltered housing in order to predict what their likelihood is that they're going to fall. Obviously, falls are a major cause of injury amongst older people. And based on their early studies, they can predict really accurately the chances of somebody falling and when exactly they're likely to fall, which to me is like incredible and uh, such a great application of AI. And that system was developed very closely using co-design with older adult users. So I'd like to see more projects like that. And I think that really shows how uh, technology can have a, a hugely positive impact. Thank you, James. I think that message of hope is a brilliant way to end our podcast today. As you mentioned, technology offers a lot of challenges to the care system, but also a lot of opportunities. Um, and it's when it's embedded within the lives and care arrangements, their relationships, their everyday lives, that can be most impactful. So without further ado, I want to thank both of you, Kate and James, for taking the time today to discuss this exciting new policy brief. Um, the brief is now available on the Circle website. And I also want to thank you, the listener, for listening to our fourth episode of the Care Matters series. Additional episodes are also available on the Circle website. Thank you. Thank you.